And I want to speak this morning from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, with the sermon title of Now Hath He Reconciled. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Well, the, this word reconciliation is one of these big Bible words or words about which explain the result or the achievement of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The other words we think of are propitiation, which is taken from the world of the um, Old Testament temple. Think of uh, redemption, which is taken from the world of, uh, of transactions in the marketplace. And justification, which is taken from the world of the law, the legal courts. But when we think of reconciliation, we think perhaps of broken relationships within the family home or within a friendship group. And those relationships being restored it's one of those words like those other words which pronounce or enunciate the achievement of what the Lord Jesus Christ did upon the cross for sinners perhaps unlike some of those other words like propitiation um, one of the difficulties of speaking on this subject is that so many people in the world will have a pre a preconception of what reconciliation means of course the influence of um, of Marxism of Karl Marx and his theory of alienation is, is, is very per- pervasive we perhaps don't realise how pervasive it is this idea that uh, alienation are, is the separation of two things which naturally go together and there's this uh, f- fracture this um, Breaking apart, and so in his theory of alienation, the worker is is disconnected from the product of uh, the product that they've been working to create, and and that theory is is fills people's um, education system, and then it's in politics, and and then there's other ideas of alienation and of reconciliation. People, I think, have a sense that they're disconnected from their community, even from from families. Families don't live together like they used to. People have to work um, often miles away and and, um, perhaps only come home at weekends. There's a separation of things that properly belong together. Um, Social commentators often write about social isolation. An alienation, the general sense of feeling separated and and Western culture feeling dehumanizing, just a number, just a just somebody who's um, 
not really an individual, just a number amongst many. And of course the ecumenical church at least, don't think we would get involved in this, but the ecumenical church has its own has created its own theology of reconciliation and it's got all these different theologies and schemes and methods which are to be applied in politics and and in social work to to bring communities together. And maybe some of those things can be useful in the way we approach our understanding, but I would probably say discard all of that. What does the Bible teach about biblical reconciliation and what we're going to do this morning is walk through these three verses and I hope that by the end of these of of, of going through these three verses we'll have a pretty good understanding of what reconciliation means in the New Testament so we're looking at verses 21 to 23 It begins in verse 21, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. And that first two words, and you, is important because the apostle is addressing these Colossian Christians personally. He had been, he started off the epistle talking to them directly, but he breaks off in verses 15 to 20 to give this glorious description of the Lord Jesus Christ some commentators say that it's a fragment of 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 an early hymn I don't know if that's true or not but it's a wonderful description isn't it in, in those verses 15 to 20 of the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of creation the head of the church God in human flesh and, and we can't understand such glory and beauty um, I'm one of those who are completely ignorant about um, art probably all of art but certainly paintings and I couldn't tell you who painted what maybe the Mona Lisa or something like that but, but, I, but I can still admire something that's beautiful I, I couldn't tell you anything about it but you know that's a bit like this description here and when we we read of the Lord Jesus in the Bible it's beyond words isn't it we we can't describe him but we know we're in the presence of glory we're in the presence of beauty and Paul breaks off from his uh, sermon if you like to these uh, Colossians and he, he goes into this peon of praise this is the Lord Jesus Christ and he does this because he wants them to know that he tells them that they've been translated from an old kingdom into this new kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants them to know who this king is whose kingdom this belongs to he wants them to be um, grounded and settled and secure in their faith it seems that one of the problems the Christians were having here in Colossae nearly all of the epistles were were written to address some problem or other which is a bit encouraging so if we have problems it's not unique it started right at the beginning but the problem here at Colossae seems to be that um, 
the Lord Jesus Christ was somehow fading into the background. He was no longer central to the church and to their understanding of Christianity. Um, Certain Jewish pagan customs had crept in. Paul describes these, we haven't time to look at it, but he describes these as, as the commandments and doctrines of men. A show of wisdom in will worship and humility, neglecting the body, not in any honour to the satisfying of the flesh. It seems that they were becoming fixated with angels. That, well, that can be a problem. We, we, we see that in some charismatic circles where angels seem to have far too much of a prominence. Now, of course, I believe in angels. It may even be, wouldn't be at all surprised if there's an angel amongst us this morning. But we're not to worship the angel. We're to concentrate on the Lord Jesus. Paul says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. So I don't really know for sure, but it, it seems that they were in danger of wandering away from Jesus and onto these other things. And even in their sanctification, their day to day walk, you know, instead of focusing on the Lord Jesus, they were fussing about um, meat and drink and holy days and new moons and sabbath days and touch not taste not handle not and we've we've got to be careful that even in our sanctification we we focus not on ourselves but on jesus the old hymn it's not in our hymn books i don't think it's a shame it says turn your eyes upon jesus Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That, that's the way to become holy. If we, if we come looking in the whole time, and we do need to repent every time we sin, but the answer's not in. The answer is in the Lord Jesus Christ, to look at him. And we won't have any interest in the world. Sin will be, we won't want to go that way. And these Colossians, well, they seem to be becoming legalistic to think it's, it's, not, it's the things that they don't do that make them holy rather than having a, an appetite for spiritual things. But Paul wants these Colossians to understand the, how firm a foundation has been laid for them in Christ. He wants them to be strong and stable and to know the reality of what it is to have their lives utterly changed by Jesus Christ. And in our text today, we see the same purpose and aim. Uh, returning to verses 21 to 23. And you. He returns to addressing them in this personal way. And why does he do this? Well, in verse 23, he does this so that they will be grounded and settled. Grounded and settled. And that's really what um, the point of preaching is, the point of these services are, the point of, well, one of the points, anyway, not the only purpose, but the purpose of church is that all of us become grounded and settled, that we're not weak that we're not blown around by every different teaching that comes in and Paul wants these Colossian Christians who are in danger of of wandering away from the true faith to be grounded and settled 
I wonder if, um, you know, where, where, what method would you take? If you wanted to, maybe you go to a young church or a, group, a youth group, whatever it might be, and you want them to be mature and settled and grounded, what, what method would you use? How would you go about it? Well, I think Paul's method is, is, a, is a method that perhaps many of us wouldn't ever have thought of. He, he begins at a place which, to me, is not obvious. But it's where he, he, in, he, in his attempt to get them to be settled, he starts in a particular place. And he takes them, first of all, to the awful state of their lives before they became Christians. He says here, and verse 21, beginning, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. He begins there. He's described the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And now he goes on to describe the magnificence of the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ gives. Do you know, I was thinking about this as I was preparing. It is actually a very good method. What gives me confidence and grounds me and settles me is a vision and an understanding of what God has done for me, what I was like before I was reconciled to him. The dreadful state that we were in. And this salvation, Paul teaches, is so great, so wonderful, that it can deal with our past. It can deal with our past. No one's past is so dreadful that it cannot be dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? There's no dark secret. There's no skeleton in the cupboard. There's no habit or chain that cannot be broken. Whatever we were, or whatever we are, if we're not a Christian yet, the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ can deal with. He can deal with our past. And boy, every one of us has a past. The only difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is that our past has been dealt with through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it means that everyone can be reconciled if they come to Christ because he reconciles the very worst people. He reconciles the most hopeless people. Reconciled me. Reconciled you and we can all say we should, in a sense, there should be something in our hearts to say that we were the chief of sinners, if we really understand. And you, he says in verse 21, he describes what they were like before. This is his method. He does this in other places. He does this in Ephesians, for example. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5, he, he describes what they were like before they were saved. Well, they weren't very pretty at all before they were saved, he says. Their past way of life was in the lusts of the flesh. They fulfilled every desire of the flesh and of the mind. 
And by nature, they were children of wrath. Well, that's a terrible description, but it's true, isn't it? If you're outside of Christ, we want to do something, we feel like doing something. There might be some constraints if we're brought up in a strict way or um, we have some kind of morality, but we, we do, we get away with what we think we can get away with and we indulge in our, our appetites. And that's what Paul says, you were like that in the past. He does it again in chapter 2 of Ephesians in 11 to 13. He says, remember ye were without Christ, aliens, strangers, no hope without God. That is what you were before you were reconciled. Aliens, strangers, no hope. But as a result of reconciliation, now, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus... Ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So brought near. You who were a stranger are now brought into the presence of God. That's another way of thinking of, how, of what a Christian is. Someone who was far away and God almost grabs them and brings them into his presence. He, he brings them near. Like we would a child who, who we love and we say, come, come and sit near me. Be with me. And that's what a Christian is. Someone who God has brought near. Who once was far away. And you may feel a million miles from Christ. And I don't know, if you're not a Christian perhaps, even if you are a Christian today, you may feel a million miles from God, from Christ. But I want you to know that God wants you near him. He, he gave his son who shed his blood to bring you nigh, to bring you near, to be with him. So what, let's look a little bit more carefully here. This is what we were like. Verse 21, we were, first of all, we were alienated. And we were alienated from God. And that's, a, that's an object, objective reality of everyone outside of Christ. We're alienated from God and God is alienated from us. There's this barrier, there's this broken relationship between us and God and God and us. It's, it's a two-way thing. The emphasis here is on, is on us rather than God in this, in this text. But there are other texts where the emphasis is on God needing to be reconciled to us. And the cause of this alienation is, is a broken relationship between God and man. Well, how, man, we know from the beginning of the Bible, was made to have fellowship with God, sweet communion with God, walked with God in the, in the cool of the garden. And yet... Sin came into the world, didn't it, and broke that relationship, destroyed that relationship, and alienation came in. And that alienation has gone through all the generations of man, and it's here today. There is this barrier between you and God, and unless you're in Christ, you are separate from God. How did this happen? Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities, your iniquities, not your iniquities, 
We often just say, well, it's Adam and Eve. No, it's your iniquities, because we've repeated the sin in our life. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Unless you're in Christ, God's looking away from you. He cannot look at you. He's hiding his face from you. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? The roots of this uh, alienation are deep and ancient. Philosophers have written about it. Poets have written about it. This sense everyone has that there's a disjointed, there's a disjunction between between us and the world, and between us and other people. And some philosophers have even understood that it's, there's a disjunction between us and God. God warned our first parents that if they sinned, they would surely die. And they certainly did. Human life disintegrated. Adam's relationship with Eve disintegrated at the beginning. They blamed each other. Adam's relationship to his work became bitter and his spirit, their spirits died. That's, that's, what, that's the nature of the death that sin brought. Man's spirit, that thing within us which connects with God, died. It's like the antennae, the signal between us and God was switched off. It's like those... Um, I don't know. Those, those, those Mars rovers that, we, that, that are being sent up to Mars. Uh, and um, sometimes, was it, was it Discovery and Endeavour? I can't remember all the names of them. There's quite a number of these, these rovers that are sent up. And it's amazing. They, they, they travel around Mars and they send images back to Earth. But sometimes the signal is lost because there's a great dust storm and, and the signals lost between earth and mars or, or the battery runs the battery runs out because there's no sun to to charge the the batteries well that's what happened to man the signal was lost the spirit died the battery died this great storm of sin created a barrier between us and god and god has hid his face from us we can't see him and he can't see us. That's the situation we were in, alienated from God. And then secondly, still in verse 20, we're not getting very far away, but um, secondly, enemies in your mind. Enemies in your mind. Our minds before we were reconciled to God before we became a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, this is your current situation. By nature, you are hostile, mentally hostile to God. You're an enemy of God. Paul teaches this in Romans 8, 6-8, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
Why? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. By nature we're rebellious, by nature we're disobedient to God. We like, we do not like God having a, a, a set way for us to live. And this is really what the law is in the Bible. It's the, it's the set way that a human should live. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a broad definition. It doesn't specify how we spend every second of every day. But it's, it's a template for how this is what a human being should live. That's God set that out. But we don't like that. We were created of our minds set upon God and we've ended up with natures that are set against God. What a tragedy. And the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is used every day. I hear it in the workplace, in the building site, in the farm. The Lord Jesus, his name is the most common swear word. It's a fact. And men will freely use his name. But were you or I to speak to them of the Lord Jesus Christ evangelistically or with honour, then there's a, there's a horror in the room, isn't there? There's an embarrassment. There's a shifting of the feet. People take offence. Why? Because people are enemies in their mind against God. We're rebels. By nature we are not just bad, we are in rebellion against God. That's... Our situation outside of Christ. And then it says, by wicked works. This alienation from God and this enmity against God, this hatred of God, inevitably leads to wicked actions, wicked deeds. Our nature is sinful and therefore we act out according to our nature. Peter refers in, in his second epistle, rather amusingly, to the nature of a pig and to the nature of a dog. And I, I keep pigs and I know this is true. It says about the pig that you can wash it, you can groom it, you can even perhaps put a little pink bow around his neck. But his nature will be to go back into the mud, to wallow in the mud. You see... This pig has a pig nature and he will act according to his nature. And a human being has a particular nature outside of Christ and they will, you will act according to your nature. People say, well, I've got free will. Yes, you do have free will. You have free will to act according to your nature. But that's, all your, that's the bound of your freedom. That's why the Christian is the only one who has freedom of choice, real freedom, because we have, we have the freedom to act according to our new nature. We're born again. I'm going way away from what I should be talking about. Our wicked works, our sins of commission and omission are evidence of our nature outside of Christ. And then, so that, that's where he takes them first. He explains, before reconciliation, this is what you were. And now, having explained the awful state of their lives before they became Christians, he now goes on to explain their new standing in Christ, having been reconciled. 
And we're looking here at the end of verse 21 and verse 22. So let's read that. Yet now, end of 21, yet now. That's, oh, that's an amazing, I just, just pause there. Now, what a difference. Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameable and unreprovable in his sight. What a radical difference. You having been reconciled are now, that's what you were and this is now what you are. They've been estranged from God because of their sin and guilt, but now they're reconciled to God. Now, once you become a Christian, you are, you, your relationship with God is mended. You are That enmity, that wall between you and God is broken down. And the more we understand this great contrast between the sometime of Verse 21, and the now at the end of 21, the more excited you and I will be about our salvation. We were strangers, we were aliens, no hope, no God, but now in Christ we're brought near, made nigh by the blood of Christ. And how was this achieved? Verse 22, it was achieved in the body of his flesh through death so the ground of our reconciliation is what Christ has done for us in his body of flesh by his death something very important here I want to explain Paul says now you have been reconciled there's this great change in your life you were once this and this is now what you are but all this happened because of something that Jesus Christ did in his body of flesh so there's this now in in life that is a result of something that happened in history before before we were even born before we existed Something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago. And so Paul is teaching that reconciliation between a sinner and his God um, was accomplished at the cross. But it has to be applied in real time, in real life to me during the course of my lifetime. Well that sounds obvious doesn't it? But it's amazing how many people miss this. There is this accomplishment of the cross, the accomplishment of salvation. The Christian is reconciled in the body of Christ's flesh through death. It happened before you and I were even born. And yet, it has to be applied in my life. If you're not a Christian, 2023. So let's go through that just very quickly. What did Christ do upon the cross which leads to my reconciliation to God? Well, Paul explains it in, in the second chapter of Colossians, verses 13 and 14. Just turn there with me. 
Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's what the Lord Jesus did 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, or nearly, the record, if I'm a Christian, the record of my debt was nailed to the cross. The great list of all my sins in my mind, in my body, in my heart, all the things I've actively done, all the things I neglected to do, every single transgression of the law, every swear word, every lustful thought, every lazy day, every ne neglect of duty, whatever you can think of, make it worse. The most wicked and evil and disgusting perversions, murders, rapes, genocides. Anyone who has committed any of those things and turns to Christ for reconciliation, his or her sins were nailed to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's an objective reality. Outside of me, before I was born, Jesus in his body of flesh and in his death counselled the record of my debt. All the sins that I would commit in my lifetime. Some people say, well, you know, I know about being forgiven, but what about all the things, what if I sin in the future? Well, when Jesus died, all your sins were in the future. He's died for your sins that you know about and all the sins you will commit. This is the most generous gospel. It was customary, customary for the Romans when they carried out a crucifixion to post the criminal charges above the head of the crucified one. Just a list of the, the crimes that they were dying for. Well, we know that Pilate didn't think Jesus had done anything wrong. And so uh, he, made a, he made a... This was what the charge was for the Lord Jesus. He just wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Because he had, sin he had not sinned. But, you know, above his head were written all of our sins all the record of our debt and every single sin was nailed to the cross so you don't have to bear it that's the gospel he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. That's the great accomplishment, achievement of salvation. But how does that, how does that get us to the now? It, Paul says now. 
Now you're reconciled. So how, how does that which happened so long ago come to me? How do I benefit from that in my life? Well, salvation has to be not only achieved, it has to be applied. We're not reconciled to God by admiring the cross. There's too much of that that goes on. Looking at crosses and looking at um, images of Christ and, uh, uh, and this sort of kind of false religion where you're, you're, you're becoming emotional about images of the cross. We don't become a Christian by admiring the cross. We don't become a Christian by understanding theories of, of the cross or theories of the atonement, although that's important in, in one context. It doesn't save you. You can be ever so knowledgeable about the cross and still it doesn't really change you it, because the point of the cross is that to bring you near to God. We personally need to receive forgiveness. And how is this possible? Well, let me turn you very... Don't need to turn to it. Just listen to Acts 10.43. To Christ give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. In order to experience this reconciliation, you have to believe in him. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be united with Christ through faith. And then you will know the reality of what Christ has done for you upon the cross. Paul said, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And nobody can come into the good of any of this apart from faith. That's how this objective historical achievement of the cross is applied to you and I personally. Jesus died once and once only for sinners. Decisively he obtained redemption for those who would believe. It says in some verses he purchased our salvation. But you only come into the experience of it once this salvation is applied in your life today we see the same um, thing in Romans 5.10 we, the, the accomplishment of salvation for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son that's the history the application is much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life Christians of, a previ of previous generations used to call this closing with Christ. Closing with him. And this is the bit that's so often missed out. We have to come and believe in him. And believing is more than just reciting the Apostles' Creed, although perhaps we should do more of that. But you know, believing means Throwing all my trust, throwing all, all my weight, all the weight of my life on the truth of the cross and believing. But it's like your, your house is on fire and this six foot eight, 14 stone fireman comes in to rescue you and, and you can't get out 
But you, you, you put your faith in that fireman who's trained to rescue and, and, it, and it's more than just believing he's from the fire brigade. You believe he can save you and you put your life in his hands. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. Believing is putting your life in Christ's hands for this life and for eternal life. Dear friend, I'm not going to be able to get much further with these notes. I'll end by saying, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, you're, you're living under that condemnation that I described earlier. But the gospel is an offer. It's an offer to um, exchange all that condemnation, exchange all that alienation, to exchange it for the free gift of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That he achieved through his body of flesh, through death, so that he could save sinners like you and I. But you have to enter into it. How? Not through good works not through going on a course about Christianity not through even doing a degree in theology not through becoming a monk or a nun or a hermit not through so as these Colossians were beginning to do by punishing their bodies none of, none of that will get you to Christ we're justified by faith so today I plead with you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, come to him by faith. And you will find that you are reconciled to God. And this peace will come. This justification will come. This All the benefits, the forgiveness, the redemption, the, the turning away of God's anger so that there's now peace between me and God. This relationship will immediately be restored. You'll, you'll have a lifetime working it out, but you'll know that you are right with God, that your sins are washed away, that your past is dealt with, your present is catered for, and your future. We didn't get to the future, but the next verse, the next bit talks about how we will be on Judgment Day as a result of what Jesus did. We will be holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Because our judgment day has already happened on the cross. And we will be brought near to God on that day of judgment. We'll stand before him, he'll bring us near, and he will say, You are holy, you are unblameable, you're unreprovable. No blame. God, God will not blame us for a thing and no one else can bring any charge against God's elect. And what will be true of you on that day of judgment is true of you now if you know Jesus Christ. And so, dear friends, to be a Christian is a wonderful thing. And not to be a Christian is a dreadful thing. And we invite you as a church to come.
by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.